ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? media uh come on by check things out do the things that i always ask you to do or don't you're you have human agency um so uh this is gonna be a solo thing it's a little after nine in the morning on friday big day ahead got special report tonight and um gotta write a g file got some meetings some phone calls um gotta move a body so lots of stuff going on um where to begin? So I was watching Morning Joe this morning. Um, it's better than cutting yourself. And um, I got to say, you know, people know I have a soft spot in my heart for, for Scarborough and, and that show. But uh, between that panel and Jen Psaki talking about this is what, like, democracy looks like. And, and Scarborough was even saying just now that it was, you know, that this is like Madisonian democracy at work. Um, it's just not. I mean, it's like just literally not. Um, and I tried to write about this in the G file on Wednesday, which a lot of people just um, did not like. That's fine. Um, it happens. Uh, it was, you know, on the self-indulgent side. That's okay. Uh, but um, I stand by the ideas in it, which we'll get to in a second. Um, but like Madisonian democracy, right? So the thing about Madisonian democracy is that it was it was not only wide it was deep right it created all these pockets and honeycombs of political activity where um you know it's not just that the federal government has uh separation of powers every state government to one extent or another has uh very similar or basically mirror versions of separation of powers yeah i know there's like what nebraska has a unicameral legislature or something like that, you know, because they want to devote more energy to eating runzas or something. But as a general proposition, every state has, you know, executive, legislative, judicial branch and blah, 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 blah. And then counties have this, cities have this, townships have this to one extent or another. And the point of this was to create all of these kind of circuit breakers that uh, stem populist passions but also that allow ideas for policy, for laws to work their way up from below rather than be imposed from above. And um, the way, and this is one of the things I was writing about in the Wednesday G-File, the way that the um, infrastructure bill is, is being handled it's the very opposite of that. I mean, first of all, uh, you know, again, everyone's sick of talking about this, but they basically came up with the numbers first. You know, they came up with the idea, you know, how much do we want to spend first? And then they sort of backfill and say, okay, these are the things we're going to cram into it to get us to that number, which is an insane way to do anything in life. Um, you know, with the exception of like, you know, if you've got a gift certificate to a sizzler and it's for like a thousand dollars. So you invite all your buddies or your family and you go into it knowing that any money you do not redeem from this thing is going to be a gift to sizzler. So you 
plan out how to overspend, you know, right to the dollar mark. Okay, that's fine. There are things like that. If you're on a freaking game show, that's fine. But you don't spend, and remember, we're borrowing trillions of dollars to um, where you just start with what's a big number we can put up on the board and then we'll cram whatever social welfare policies we want, we can figure out and climate change policies in there to hit that number. That's a dumb way to do it. But even to the extent you can make a defense of some of that stuff, you can say, look, some of these ideas were in the water that they've been developed over time and blah, 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 blah. And they knew what they wanted to do. And it's not as ad hoc as that sounds. I think you're wrong, but you know, I'm sure in some cases that that's a defensible claim and other cases it's not, doesn't really matter because at the same time, Nancy Pelosi is doing something. She's worse than Paul Ryan was about this stuff, but Paul Ryan was bad about this stuff too. And I'm, I'm, I'm friends with Paul Ryan. I like Paul Ryan. Um, I defend Paul Ryan to a lot of his critics, but part of the problem that he had was that he had, you know, a bunch of pains in the ass, um, Freedom Caucus, House Freedom Caucus types and Tea Party types who didn't actually want to do legislation. They just wanted to destroy legislation as, you know, rebels and outsiders and all that kind of stuff. And so a process that, that was becoming worse over time when he came into office, it got even worse under Paul Ryan and then got even worse under Nancy Pelosi which is that basically legislation is crafted inside um, the leadership office. And then they come out and they say, here you go, you take it or leave it. Um, and they don't even, and as Nancy Pelosi said on Stephanopoulos on, on Sunday, they don't even bring it out unless they have all of the votes. So there's no debate. There's no committee workup. There's no process where this kind of thing is hammered out. Um, among legislatures while they debate the, the language of stuff. And, 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 and reconciliation is this stuff on steroids because basically what happens is they come up with a budget number and then they basically go and tell the committees, you know, come up with legislation that fits these numbers and do it fast because we're on a clock here. And um, that's not how it's supposed to work. I mean, I, I feel like I should replay Ben Sass's you know, Kavanaugh hearings diatribe about how Congress doesn't do its job. And when Congress doesn't do its job, everything else becomes political because, you know, Congress is supposed to be, you know, the downy paper towel of uh, American political life. It's the quicker picker upper. It's supposed to absorb political passions so they and channel them so they don't spill out into other parts of our life. And the way, you know, Nancy Pelosi is handling this um, and Chuck Schumer is essentially to say, you guys, you know, the, my caucus is a rubber stamp to approve this thing. And this certainly isn't an example of public policy ideas bubbling up through some local town, county, state, or whatever, you know, as a demonstration project where we figure out how something works well, and then other states borrow it. And then someone says, you know, we should have a national version of this. And they have debates in committee and they do markups and they they interrogate witnesses who have different perspectives on this and they they weigh facts none of that stuff is going on here this is you know this is like a you know a lot of the the new new deal or green new deal stuff in this is basically like dorm room bong session stuff where you just say you know wouldn't it be great if we retrofit all this and did all that and blah 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 and they farm it out to activists think tanks and or not even think tanks but you know activist groups that want you know uh, this stuff they want to see billions or trillions of dollars thrown at certain things because 
they're in the business to get billions or trillions of dollars thrown at their issues. Um, and again, I'm not I'm not making this as a like a sort of Thomas Nast cartoon um, or, you know, or sort of vulgar Marxist or even like ancient Rome kind of cui bono, you know, who benefits where everyone is really motivated by by greed. I don't think greed and like financial profit is what really drives things. I think it's hilarious how all of a sudden I've just seen in the last few days people talking about, you know, including a bunch of celebrity blue checkmark types, you know, accusing Mansion and cinema of being bought off, of being paid to vote this way, um, which I just think is it's, it's cartoonish conspiracy theory stuff. Um, the assumption that people who disagree with you must be disagreeing with you because they've been um, they've been bought off by sinister powers um, is an ancient and idiotic. I mean, I'm not just going to say it's idiotic because sometimes it happens. Sometimes people do take bribes. It's a true fact. And people took bribes a lot more in the past. And in fact, before sort of, you know, fairly modern notions, and I don't even mean like post-enlightenment, I mean post-1920s, um, notions of reform and civil service and all that kind of stuff, you know, uh, a lot of the stuff was what, what, what is his name? Plunkett called honest graft where, you know, it was just understood that you bought policies and all that kind of thing. But in, a, in the modern, more ideological era, um, the idea that all public policy that you don't like can be reduced to someone getting paid, um, it's just lazy. You know, we heard a lot of that during the Iraq war where, um, you know, people were saying, well, Rumsfeld and Cheney and these guys, they stand to, they and their friends stand to profit from, you know, um, arms dealers or selling oil or oil contracts and all that kind of stuff. Some of those accusations may have had superficial truth to all of it, but, you know, Don Rumsfeld was also already worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Dick Cheney was already worth hundreds of millions of dollars. If they wanted to be worth even more money, you know what they wouldn't have done? Gone into government. Um, and the idea that it's just, it's, it's a, it's a, cheap and shabby way of accusing people of being unpatriotic and dishonest um, simply because you cannot grasp that someone would disagree with you. Anyway, so back to this Madisonian thing. The idea that this is all what, you know, and like, so the, you know, Saki and the people on MSNBC, they're saying, see, this is great. You have Democrats who disagree with each other and they're horse trading and they're negotiating and, and it just shows you that the party is diverse and yada, yada, yada. I get the point and there's some truth to it. I do. And it is, and there is, but, um, this is not how the system is supposed to work. There aren't people with buy-in debating this on the ground. And, and the thing that drives me crazy, well, there are a lot of things that drive me crazy about this. And some, some would say that I've already reached my final destination in terms of being driven crazy, but, um, you know, everything has this false sort of pseudo eventy air of crisis to it like if we don't pass this thing right now um all of these terrible things will happen to single mothers all of these things terrible things will happen to kids all of these terrible things will happen to the environment and all this kind of stuff and it's all an artificial sense of crisis the only real crisis here is that this is like a Bi biden's last and the democrats last shot to put more points on the board before the midterms and this, and they need an era of crisis to justify spending trillions of dollars that we don't have. And, um, 
you know, there is no reason we're not heading into a recession. It's not like, you know, uh, there's a, um, a shortage of government spending out there. Biden already got 1.9 trillion in COVID relief. And that was on top of what, like five or 6 trillion of pandemic of extra spending since the pandemic started. Lots of households have gotten wealthier over this. There's a lot of money on the sidelines waiting to be invested in things. It is not like we, you know, need to prime the pump here with some, you know, hooker and cocaine party Keynesian economics. Um, that's not the crisis here. He's not trying to pull us out of a depression or anything like that. Um, the it's all politically contrived sense of crisis, and um, and that's also not how things are supposed to work. The things are supposed to work from bottom up, not top down, and. And I think one of the reasons, and I, I know I'm a broken record on this, uh, but I, I, it's my podcast, you can not listen. Um, a huge part of the problem is how we operationally think we live in a parliamentary democracy these days. And, um, and the parties certainly behave as if we live in a parliamentary democracy. And just, just to review, in a parliamentary democracy, you basically vote a party in. And the party, takes over the government. The head of the party is the first minister, which means they report, you know, in, like in England, they report to the crown, and that's prime first minister, same thing, whatever. The crown says, you know, uh, form your government, and you do it from, uh, mostly from the ranks of your own party, and unless it's a coalition government, then you take some people from the other party, whatever. But by, by simply by virtue of the fact that you won a majority of seats, there is no other than some sort of judicial stuff. There is no stopgap. There's no, um, I shouldn't say stopgap. There's no, uh, check on what you can get away with really. So long as you have the majority of votes and party. And so it's party run government. The powers of the parliament are different than the powers of our system. The person who is in effect, um, the president is the prime minister or the, like, it's sort of like if, if the speaker of the house, we're the president of the United States kind of thing, but we don't have that system. We have a presidential system. It's different. We have different, we run elections differently. We do, we divide powers differently and a president by design cannot get whatever it wants, whatever he or she wants without buy-in from the more important branch of government, Congress, the legislative branch, you know, which is the first branch it has all the power or it has the bulk of the power. Um, again, I know I'm repeating myself, but Congress can mess with the other two branches of government. It writes the laws for the other two branches of government. It sets up most of the departments for the other two branches for, well, let's say it sets up the departments for the executive branch, right? It creates all those cabinet agencies. It authorizes them as it sees fit. Um, it can remove people from those agencies, including the president of the United States through the power of impeachment. The president can't remove anybody from Congress. Um, the Congress can also remove anybody it wants from the courts, if it so pleases. It establishes the number of seats for the Supreme Court, and it establishes and uh, assigns jurisdiction for all of the lower courts of, of, of the judicial branch. It can declare war. It can raise taxes. And yeah, I remember founding fathers cared a little bit about taxes. Um, it, uh, it's got the power, you know, it is, um, if, if, if gray skull were 
in a single branch of Congress, a single branch of government, you would hear, you know, He-Man when he made it to Congress saying, you know, I have the power. Um, and, and so like, but you listen, but because partly lizard brain stuff, partly because of the way the media has shaped the political narrative, partly because of the growth of the executive branch at the expense of Congress and the way that the Congress has essentially, you know, gelded itself over the last century in terms of its powers and its prerogatives to the point where now it doesn't even understand what its powers and prerogatives are to a large extent. Um, it doesn't want responsibility for, you know, actually running the country. It wants the president to take that stuff off of its plate. And it's been doing that for a very long time. But uh, if you watch the primaries, you listen to um, presidential candidates in both parties uh, promise to do things like on day one, you know, that formulation on my first day on day one, you know, priority number one, blah, 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 blah. I will do X, Y, and Z. And almost none of the things they say they can do can they actually do. Um, you know, I mean, like, what's her face? Uh, Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren and um, and Joe Biden. You know, a lot of them talked about, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll take the guns on the first day or we'll, you know, uh, tax these people or we'll, uh, you know, uh, do this climate change stuff. I have I've written like four columns on this. I should remember it. But, you know, I'm just I'm just riffing here. Um, and. Like sometimes they would say things that they didn't have the constitutional power to do like at all. Um, like even if Congress said, go ahead and do it, you know, you can't just go confiscate people's wealth. Um, but like in other cases, they promise to do on day one stuff that you can't do unless Congress writes a law to let you do it. You can't do it through an executive order. Um, and I understand that the role of executive orders has changed and presidents do a lot more with executive orders, but, um, you know, I, and I think a lot of that power should be curtailed, but even so, a lot of those things are just sort of like messaging things rather than actual substantive stuff. And, but anyway, the point is, is that they run as if, if the Democrats win or the Republicans win, uh, Republicans get to do whatever they want, which is something that has some superficial plausibility in a parliamentary system, but not in our system because the president, unlike a prime minister, isn't in charge of the majority that writes the laws and the powers to, power to write laws and do the big stuff all comes from Congress. And so the thing that one of the reasons I bring this up is because I'm obsessed with it and it drives me crazy that that so few people think it's interesting that I just think I'm sort of like the ugly American who thinks that. You know, the French guy will understand what I'm will suddenly understand English if I just say it louder. Um, but I think this is, you know, a sort of a concrete example of one of the things that is ruining our politics, just straight up ruining our politics. And I think it's particularly fascinating to watch how people talk, how Democrats and progressives talk about Joe Manchin as, you know, they'll say things like you owe it to your party or you owe it to your president or you owe it, you know, to the cause or, or even to the country. Right. I mean, all these kinds of things. Um, and they think it is a sign of disloyalty to, um, uh, not vote with your president. Well, in a parliamentary system, that, pa that argument would have a lot of power because you basically, you know, got elected on a slate, a party slate. You got what you got your seat, you know, because you were part of the party. Um, but that's not how it worked for Joe Manchin. 
Joe Manchin was elected. I, I, they were saying on the commentary podcast yesterday, like he had won by like 18,000 votes in West Virginia when Donald Trump won the state by like 40 points. Um, and, you know, it'd be one thing you could criticize Joe Manchin and say it's outrageous that he refuses to go along with $3.5 trillion in spending when he knows it's the right thing to do. There is no evidence that he knows it's the right thing it's the right thing to do or that he believes it's the right thing to do. There's no evidence for that whatsoever. He just, you know, and so I, I, I kind of think given that he's said it a thousand different ways over a billion years that he actually thinks 3.5, never mind 6 trillion, which is what Bernie originally wanted um, in, in new spending on top of all the other spending we've already done. Um, he thinks that's too much. He thinks that's a bad idea. He thinks the policies that it, it would go to um, aren't good for America. And so if, you, if you're willing to believe that, then what is the argument for why he should go with the party to save Joe Biden's presidency? I, I, don't, I don't, I mean, I, look, I, I get party loyalty as like a concept, you know, but Joe Manchin was elected in a state that, let's put it this way, I don't care what the polls say. My guess is that Joe Manchin, if he wants to run for re-election, needs to be the spoiler here. That doesn't mean necessarily that he can't agree to something, but he needs to be the one to say to Demo you know, to say to his state, which votes Republican, um, that you need to elect this Democrat because I'm the one standing in the way of Democrats losing their mind. And um, that's a winning message for him. Remember, he got first got elected to the Senate or got reelected governor. I can't remember. I guess it was Senate. I guess he shot the cap and trade bill um, in a commercial uh, when Obama was proposing it. Um, he understands his state better than AOC or any of these other people do. And if he thinks it's in his political interest to, um, or the political interest of his state to oppose this stuff, I, you know, I asked this on Twitter the other day. I don't understand what, what political theory, given the system that we have, says that Manchin is doing something wrong to oppose legislation he opposes on in good faith um because voters in places other than west virginia want him to do so you know i mean again parliamentary system that would make total sense um because you know it's the party agenda party 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 but that's not how our system works he stands to vote he stands for election he is the senator from west virginia and um and you can say, well, you know, it would be a profile on courage. But again, you're assuming that like somehow he thinks that this thing should pass and that you care more about rewarding, um, you know, Joe Biden than you should care about his own political future or you should care about, you know, the actual public policy stuff. And I, again, I don't, I don't want to get into the weeds on that, but there are plenty of people in blue states who probably, I am sure of it, think that this thing is, is way too big probably not a great idea certainly not being done the right way but they're going to vote for it because they come from democratic very liberal states and you know are we going to say that them voting against what they actually believe so that they can get reelected is somehow noble while mansion voting um you know f for what he actually believes um is somehow corrupt 
it's just it's just a kind of weird way of thinking about things. And um, so anyway, I just want to get that out of my system. I know, like, literally no one cares about this, but again, it's one of my obsessions. So certainly every four years, sometimes even more, um, somebody starts, you know, pissing and moaning about the Electoral College, particularly when their side loses an election um, or loses in the Electoral College. So obviously this happened a lot under um, after, after Trump won, where he picked the lock on the Electoral College while losing the popular vote. And he did lose the popular vote, even though he claimed there, that it was rigged and stolen, yada, yada, yada. Um, and one of the things you often hear, and I've, if you wanted me to, I will go dig up the columns where I quote people saying this because it's column, it's stuff that I get into fights about every, at least every four years. People will say, you know, no other country in the world does things like this. It's so undemocratic and backward and, eh. um, and you know, they make it sound like, um, the electoral college is this incredibly anti-democratic, um, uh, you know, vestigial, you know, appendix or carbuncle from a pre-modern time. And, um, and it depends who you're talking about. Cause some people have thoughtful criticisms of the electoral college and some people have idiotic ones, but you know, there's a lot of talk about how we, we should just have one national popular vote and yada, yada, yada. I think that the compact stuff, is certainly intellectually defensible and interesting and worth talking about. But anyway, I don't want to get down the weeds of electoral college. There's plenty of time to do that. I just want to point out that like they just had an election in Germany. And um, if you know how they, um, and so like, you know, we're always told that in Western Europe, they do this, you know, they're much more democratic and they do things in a much more enlightened and straightforward way. Um, a lot of this leaves out the fact that we have a presidential system. Most of these countries have parliamentary systems. Virtually no country, no modern democratic country, I think maybe except for Brazil, just directly elects a, a national leader with similar powers to the president of the United States. You know, uh, you know, one of the things that makes the president of the United States different than, say, a prime minister is that the president of the United States is the head of state, but also the head of government and the head of the executive branch and a head of a bunch of other Wears a bunch of hats. That's how they'll teach it to you in like civics, at least they used to. Um, and it doesn't work that way in parliamentary systems. I'm not saying one's better or worse. I'm just saying they're different. And um, the president is not, you know, it's very rare to find a country anywhere in the world that has a serious, actual democratic system, small d democratic system, um, where the national leader has those kinds of combined powers um, as the head of state and head of government. Um, and is directly elected. Um, um, and so, yeah, people say, well, you know, in France, they directly elect, you know, the president. Yeah, but the president doesn't have the same powers as the prime minister. Anyway, we can go down a long rabbit hole in that. I don't want to do that. But so the, the Germans um, had an election. And here's how their elections work. Uh, I'm going to read one thing, but, you know, just as set up, when you vote in a national election in Germany, you get two ballots. I mean, you get one ballot with two questions. You vote for the person that you want to represent your district. And you vote for a party. And you can vote for a representative of your district and, and who's not a member of the party that you're voting for. And this sets up um, 
this weird sort of dynamic. And so this is from like Deutsche Welle, it's, you know, a German publication explaining how their country's thing works. And here's the section from who picks the chancellor. Um, it says, unlike the presidential system in the United States, voters in Germany do not directly elect the chancellor who is the head of the government. The new parliament must convene for the first time no later than one month after the vote. It can be earlier if coalition talks go swiftly. The top candidate from the party that wins the most votes usually manages to forge a coalition. The president, who is the head of state and plays largely a ceremonial role, then presents this person as candidate for chancellor, who the newly elected members of parliament then approve in a secret ballot. Okay, so look, in America, the electors are pretty much bound to whoever their, whatever their state, however their state voted. But here we're talking about electing people in this, and there's, it gets much more complicated than this. There's this whole weird formula about how they figure out the proportional representation between the, the people who are voted directly as, 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 as representatives and the party slates and they combine the two and like the Bundestag, I think has like, you know, 800 seats in it and they come up with a formula and then they have this proportional representation thing. And then everybody gets to vote by secret ballot to pick the, their real head of state, right? They're, they are, you know, the, the Angela Merkel of, um, you know, Germany and, or to re now replace her. And look, it works for Germany. Germany's got some special issues in its past that they may want to like have better uh, circuit breakers against popular populist passion that work for them. More power to them. That's great, you know. Um, as Lenny says in the Simpsons, you know, I'm sure the Germans made mistakes, but that's why pencils have erasers. Um, my only point is, is don't start lecturing me about how the electoral college is too undemocratic and too not representative and too um, opaque compared to this Rube Goldberg machine, no relation. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's like, the, 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 it, this is part, a, a tiny facet of this larger, just incredibly annoying thing where people who have these incredibly strong convictions about how bad we do things here or how dumb Americans are or how backward we are. And this, and they, they, Imagine that there's this yardstick called Europe or Scandinavia or, you know, these days on the right, Hungary. Um, and they don't actually know very much about these places. They certainly don't have a granular grasp of how those places work or why they work the way they do. Right. I mean, there's a lot of Chesterton's fence stuff going on in other countries and why they develop the traditions and the norms that they have that are different from ours. But they, they start from this presumption that they're smarter over there, they're more sophisticated over there, and they do things better over there. And half the time, two-thirds of the time, they don't even really understand how they do things over there. But that doesn't matter because it's a hypothetical thing. It's just over there is the future and it works and what we do here is dumb and, you know, and they don't actually, you know, understand that the yardstick that they're using to compare us to doesn't actually exist. Um, so anyway, I got that off my system, out of my system. Um, I'm not going to give you punditry about what happens with all this voting uh, infrastructure stuff because I, have, I, I, I honestly do not know. Um, I'm embarrassed by all of it. Um, 
I think it's a bad idea. I think uh, the Democrats have handled it very badly. I think Republicans have handled it very badly. Um, I think Biden in particular has handled it extremely badly. Um, I think Biden, I think the that he did it, he, he mortally wounded his presidency. I wrote about this this week um, when he declared that the bipartisan deal that he signed uh, that he, you know, hammered out with Republicans. We got 19 Republicans. We were told that, you know, polarization, no way, Republicans cross party lines, they won't help Biden, yada, yada, yada. You got 19 Republicans make to join a filibuster-proof majority to support a big traditional infrastructure bill. He should have said, I did it. I campaigned as this guy. I said I knew how to work Washington. I said I knew how to reach across the aisle. I said I would bring our parties and our country together for important things. He should have, you know, like George Costanza with his one-liner, declared victory and left on a high note and said, suck it to the Progressive Caucus. And even if the Progressives voted it down then, Biden would have looked good. He would have looked good to the voters that he that are the majority makers in any, you know, election. But even then, I don't think the progressives would have voted it down. Um, that was the end of June. His polls have been going down ever since. Um, I don't quite get entirely why you know, Biden has shown to be more like Trump and Obama. Um, and to a certain extent, Bush. I mean, I guess part of it is the structural stuff I've been talking about, a parliamentary system, you know, how we, we operate like we're a parliamentary system when we don't actually have the mechanisms to make a parliamentary approach to politics work. Um, but, uh, so part of it is that, but like we had a lot of these problems under Bill Clinton, you know, what Bill Clinton did was he read the room. He saw where, you know, people thought he had moved too far left. So he moved to the center. He joined certain coalitions and, 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 triangulated and, and, you know, got Republicans to support things like NAFTA and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I get like, again, I get the polarization is hardened and all of that. That's fine. But, um, Biden just seems completely uninterested in doing the stuff that he claims he knows how to do. You know, the, the sort of, the, the sort of, you know, centrist president who knows how to work with Republicans and reach across the aisle stuff. I mean, I, I know we're getting a lot of leaks saying, oh, he's on the phone all the time making calls and all that kind of thing. But his moment to do that was June 24th, 2021, when he got that bipartisan infrastructure deal. And let's keep in mind, like whether that was the, I can't remember if it was 550 billion or 1.2 trillion, but it was somewhere between those two things and could have ended up being closer to the 1.2 trillion, whatever it came to, given that he'd already gotten a massive $1.9 trillion COVID relief thing through, if he got infrastructure week done and called it a day, he would have had among the most consequential and successful first hundred days on essentially a bipartisan basis um, of any president in a really long time. But because he listened to a bunch of people who told him he could be FDR, He's screwed all that up. And I, I say that he screwed all that up, even if all this stuff passes, because it is not like his agenda is going to gain in popularity the way the New Deal did. I mean, I, I'll just be honest. I didn't think the New Deal should have gained in popularity the way it did. 
Um, all right. Anyway, enough with all that stuff. I really loved having um, Mike Duncan on the podcast, and I'd love to have him back and do more history stuff. In fact, I want to just do more history stuff. Um, and I like historiography. I like the different notions. I like I like different theories of history um, and how it works. Um, I can't say I swear to have my own well-developed pithy understanding of history. You know, I'm against teleology, which is this idea that there is, you know, some sort of algorithm working itself out towards a specific goal or endpoint or any of that kind of thing. I'm much more Hayekian about trial and error, but I do believe in progress. You know, I'm, 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 I'm a little Whiggish. I will say, I know this is going to offend some very dorky friends of mine. I, there's a, I think there's actually a little Hegel in me. Um, but, uh, but I'm definitely not a materialist or any of that kind of stuff. And anyway, I find the whole, the whole thing sort of fascinating. And I like listening to, you know, there's, there's this big rift in, in a certain sphere of egghead world that I am adjacent to. I'm not part of, but you know, the, there's a Straussian critique, um, that also has a, there's all, and also a libertarian critique and they're not the same by any stretch, um, of what is often called historicism and people sometimes mean different things by it. And I don't want to get I didn't prep to talk about this and it's kind of complicated and the people who care about this, who are probably not most of you listening. Um, but if you get terminology slightly wrong, they get very, very, very cross with you and they assume that you don't know what you're talking about at all. Um, when instead I'm just not fully caffeinated and you know, and I would need to remind myself of some of this stuff. Um, uh, but it's just been, I've been in my head a little bit since I talked to Duncan and, you know, so the historicist stuff, and I, I, I guess I referenced this a little bit when I was talking to, to Duncan about this, um, the historicist school in, in Germany, the German historicists, deeply influenced by Hegel gets complicated, whatever. They also thought that they were influenced by evolutionary theory. Um, a little later, some of their sort of progenitors, um, got a big shot in the arm when Einstein's theory of relativity had been confirmed because they had been talking about relativism for a very, very long time before relativity, you know, uh, as a scientific notion, uh, before the, the sunspot stuff that Einstein did that confirmed all that. Um, and so they thought this was like, sort of like a lot of people who believed in cultural evolution stuff saw Darwinian theory as scientific support for stuff that they already believed. The arrival of relativism sort of did the same thing. And so anyway, the, the point is, is that historicism is, in this context, is this sort of view that everything is contextual, that certain places um, you know, evolve with different values, different truths, different norms. Um, and, uh, and that cultural relativism to a certain extent is, is a sophisticated and accurate way of understanding places. And then there's this other view. And again, I'm, I'm really butchering this stuff that says, no, there's actually universal laws or universal principles that apply everywhere. And there's just some people who are hewing to them more than others do. And in the sort of 
libertarian kind of tradition, the Hayekian or the Vonnesian, I should say, tradition. That's sort of the Austrian school. Um, and some of the Vonnesian types used to, you know, write me emails telling me how I was dabbling in logocentrism because I was saying how people in different places, you know, think differently. I mean, this is like 20 years ago, but this is long, as long as I've been having these kind of things. And, um, and in fact, the Austrian school, uh, was named the Austrian school by the historicists who did not like the Austrian school for having, for making claims about you know, sort of universal classical liberal principles that go around the world. And, um, and so the Straussian critique is similar, but not the same. I mean, the Straussians are not primarily interested in economic stuff, but they, as, as you've all put it when he was on here talking about Straussianism a little bit, they believe in this timeless space where the great thinkers have this conversation amongst themselves about what the absolute truths are and what natural right is and all of these kinds of things. And so they too have a problem with historicism, which is, um, you know, grounded in notions of contingency and particularity and, you know, what's true for Persians isn't true for, for, for Athenians, which isn't true for, you know, Clevelanders and so on and all that kind of stuff. And, um, I tend to be, um, in the middle of a lot of this. I do think that there are some enduring real principles that apply everywhere if applied, right? I mean, I think free market, free market economics when applied works. Now it may be harder to apply in some places because of cultural barriers or entrenched interests or a dozen other things, but it works. Um, and that I also think that like concepts like, um, human rights and these kinds of things, even if they're much more difficult to apply in some places than in other places, and you have to be somewhat prudential about these things, you know, we we are not going to make Rwanda a haven of fidelity to human rights overnight. That doesn't mean we shouldn't want them to become one someday. Um, but I do think notions of the dignity of human beings is true across borders. It's sort of like, you know, George W. Bush used to say, you know, family values do not end at the Rio Grande. Um, there are certain principles that are universal. And I think, you know, certainly a lot of Catholics, you know, and Christians and I guess Muslims and, you know, also, and for that matter, atheists, whatever. But, you know, a lot of people can understand that sort of point. At the same time, when you're doing the work of a historian, which, you know, I'm not. I dabble in intellectual history stuff, but I'm not a you know professional historian. Um, you also got to understand things within their context, how they under were understood in that context at that time. And it's kind of funny to me how this is one of these divides that kind of splits some of Straussian world where we're supposed to have an originalist understanding of the constitution. You know, what was the common understanding of these words? What did they mean by these words when they wrote them down? Yada, yada, yada. And at the same time, we're supposed to believe in this sort of universalism stuff. Um, and a lot of people, what they do is they take um, the declaration, of the, the preamble to the Declaration of Independence and a few other things, and they say, this is the context that we should understand all of this other stuff. And we're not going to get into the weeds and all of that. Um, uh, and so that's what I was getting to with this thing called Einfühlung which is just the German word for empathy. And as I, as I mentioned, I just think this is sort of interesting. We did not have the word empathy 
um, in English apparently until the beginning of the 20th century, like 1908 or something like that. Um, even though it had been a Greek word and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, uh, Einfelung basically means feeling yourself into, right. That you sort of, you immerse yourself in a culture to understand the culture. And I think that there's every, there's, there's, that's what historians should do. They need to keep their perspective and all that kind of stuff, but they need to immerse themselves in the context to really understand, understand the context at the time. And the same thing with sociologists and, you know, lots of that kind of stuff. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And that doesn't mean that you have to all of a sudden be, become a cultural relativist, even if you under, even if you're immersing yourself in something, you know, you do get cases where you, people go native, um, where the historicists can go wrong is well, lots of places. Um, but one of the places that can go wrong is when they start, you know, thinking that their nation is chosen or unique, um, for historical reasons. And the Germans went into this big time. Um, so did the French, but at least back then it had, it had much more of a Christian valence to it. Um, even after the atheist crazies took over everything, it was still sort of mimicking, you know, Christian notions. Um, but the sort of Hegelian, uh, German historians, historicists were different. Um, but anyway, so what I think is sort of fascinating to me is still how, you know, there's, there are all of these rich debates about what is history, how, what, you know, what does a historian do? Um, and I think it's E.H. Carr. He wrote this, I guess it was a small book or a long essay called what is history? Maybe it was a big book. I can't remember, but I'm pretty sure it was Carr who, you know, kind of scoffed at people saying that, you know, what historians do is they just go where the facts take them and they just follow the facts. And you can see there are a lot of analogs to debates about historians and uh, historiography with journalism, right? Cause it's sort of, you know, journalism is the first draft of history kind of stuff. And Carr makes a point that, you know, I think a lot of media critics make, which I've made a million times, which is that you can't just say that you're following facts because you still have to decide what facts get the greater weight and importance than other facts. And I, so I think it was Carr who had said, you know, look, millions of people crossed the Rubicon, <laughs> but it was only important when Caesar did it. Um, the point being that like, you can't, you can't flatten everything down to just the facts. You still have to pick and choose things. Um, it's sort of like, uh, um, you know, you know, there's this debate about like economic models or political or social science models and stuff that simplify things too much. And, um, uh, I remember it was, it was Samuel Huntington was talking about this a long time ago and he says, yeah, of course that's true. Um, you have to do that. You have to simplify and trim, um, extraneous things. Otherwise you get what William James called just a big bloom and buzzing confusion. And so like, you know, a model of, a of an F 16, right? It tells you a, a really well done model of an F 16 tells you all sorts of interesting and important things about an F 16, but it also leaves out all sorts of things like a functioning engine and a pilot and active weapon systems because it's only like 12 inches long. 
but it gives you a sense of the proportion of the thing. It gives you a sense of the scale of the thing. It gives you a sense of what it, you know, how it does and how it functions and all that. And that's important, but it also just leaves out important things and how that has to do with the historia. Well, anyway, so like my point is, is like enormous amount of editorial judgment goes into history and, and doing the craft of history and picking and choosing what was important, what wasn't, I think is just, um, it makes it very difficult to turn history into a science, even though I think Seymour Martin Lipset was right when he said that, you know, uh, history is the mother of all the social sciences. Um, I would have loved to have asked him more about what he, what he meant by that. But I think the way I've always remembered, the way I've always thought about that is that um, at the very minimum, history is the massive raw data set for all the social sciences. Because it's just all the stuff that happened. And that's how the social sciences work, is they look at all the stuff that happened and they sort of insert statistical or num you know, numerical die markers into these data sets, illuminating the data that they think is important or relevant to what they're doing. And, um, and sometimes they're right. I don't know. So anyway, um, I guess we're done with all that. Uh, what else is there to talk about? Um, how long have I been going? I got about 10 minutes here, something like that. Um, knock on wood. Um, all right, since we're still talking about the history stuff, uh, one of the things I didn't get to talk to Duncan about, and again, I, I would love it. I, maybe I'll listen to the whole Rome thing and then have him back or whatever. But, you know, one, I learned a bunch of discrete little things and, you know, and big important things. And there were some things I knew, but like, like I'm one of these people just because of the occupation that I have and my personality type is I'm, I'm kind of like I pan like a, you know, one of those gold uh, panhandler guys sifting through the Creek stuff, the Creek sediment looking for little nuggets of gold. Um, I'm kind of wired that way. When I read things, I find, you know, what, um, what my old boss, Ben Wattenberg liked to call id knots, um, which is short for, I didn't know that. And, and there are a lot of good little idnots in, um, in Duncan's podcasts. And, um, um, and one of the things that he helped me sort of clarify in my own head is when you read English history stuff, um, and European history stuff in general, but English history in particular, you find lots of people talking about you know, the, the rights and privileges of free men. And, um, and this is very much a sort of an Einfeldung kind of point, uh, you know, the rights and privileges of free men and ancient liberties and all of these kinds of things. And it turns out that in specific circumstances in specific cases, some of those rights and liberties were actually entitlements. You know, they were, you know, someone's great grandfather or great, 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 great grandfather helped win some war 500 years ago. And he was, his family was given title to X amount of farmland in perpetuity, which he got to extract rents from. Um, and this gets handed down as the rights and privileges of free men. Um, and it's a, it's just that weird way given where sort of conservative political theory is today to talk about rights and privileges of a free 
person involving, you know, extracting rents and wealth from uh, illegitimate, by my lights, um, statist contracts. And, uh, and what's interesting to me about it is it, it put, first of all, it helped me sort of, it just helped me understand this better um, in my own head. This is from the English Civil War um, podcast. Um, but it also put in a little sort of starker clarity how, remember that f- sort of, you know, famous woman from the Tea Party protests who had the sign saying, government, keep your hands off my Medicare. Um, and it's just kind of weird that this was supposed to be this sort of libertarian, populist, constitutionalist, small government um, uprising. And here's someone saying, government, keep your hands off of my government-run entitlement program. But you can kind of sort of see how it kind of fits into this, not only just human nature, but also this sort of thinking from back then. And anyway, I thought it was, it was interesting. Um, um, what else? Oh, uh, since we're talking about history stuff. So if you've, if you read suicide of the West, if you read some of the things that I've, um, written since, you know, I, I do this thing all the time where, um, I try to point, you know, so all right, wait, back up. One of my problems with these sort of new common good right, you know, the sort of Sorab, social Catholics, you know, uh, um, various nationalists, I mean, that, that, that general group. And there are different points of view and different people in them. And it's hard to paint with a broad brush about all of them. So I'm just generalizing here. But one of my, you know, my general critiques of people like Patrick Deneen, who again, I think is a very nice guy and a very smart guy and has lots of interesting things to say is that they generally have this sort of classic reactionary understanding or perspective on, on technological and material progress where, um, it's not quite Luddite, although sometimes it is. Um, uh, but it's sort of like, you know, we should have frozen things at this point or at that point. Um, you know, the famous Brink-Lindsay line about how uh, the right wants to um, live in the 1950s and the left wants to work there. You know, you hear a lot of people talking about that kind of stuff. In the late 90s, there was a lot of you know, neo-Luddite stuff out. Um, and sometimes it's about social media. It was a bad invention. I agree it was a bad invention um, for the most part. Um, and sometimes it's, you know, the birth control pill or whatever. And, you know, you can pick and choose. The problem is that, you know, they don't like, again, speaking as a broad generalization, they don't like the stuff that they don't like, but they take for granted the stuff that they do like. And, you know, the if you're going to give the state or a bunch of priests or whoever the power to, to quash innovation generally speaking as they see fit um you can't just say oh we would have used that power over the last 100 or 500 years wisely and we would have gotten all the good stuff but none of this bad stuff because it just doesn't work that way you know the the scientific process that got us the light bulb or penicillin or 
Um, the internal combustion engine also got us some bad things because that's how discovery works. That's how, um, you know, the unfolding and development of knowledge works. And it's very difficult. And, and the people who would be in charge of, of guiding enlightened technological uh, advancement almost by definition would know less about technology and scientific advancement than the people making the technology and doing the scientific advancing. And that doesn't mean you can't have guidelines that constrain what scientists can do, you know, I mean, like embryonic stem cell research or human, you know, experimentation. I mean, there are some broad guidelines that you can just say, we're not going to do this. Um, and you know, that makes some of my, you know, my cornucopia ist friends like Ron Bailey mad because they just, you know, Ron doesn't want to like torture and experiment on living human beings or any of that kind of stuff, but they have a much broader ethical framework than I do about what should be permissible. Regardless, my point is, is just like, you know, most of the, you know, good stuff that we have, um, is the result of the scientific revolution and the enlightenment. I mean, I just, I don't think that should be controversial. Um, and there are a bunch of people these days, you know, who in that crowd who disagree with that, you know, and they, you know, that we were better off in this, you know, feudal times or wherever, or at least they like to insinuate it like it's a clever thing to say. And, you know, if you just, so like one of the things I, you know, cite in Suicide the West is like light, light, like literally just like light bulb light, the ability to illuminate your home, the ability to read words on a page, um, the ability to see your way down a flight of stairs, you know, light, the stuff that you need when the sun goes down. And, um, I can put it in the show notes cause I've done it a few times, but like the, the, or go to human progress and just poker humanprogress.org and you poke around about this a lot. The amount of time that human beings in Western developed nations and really around the world, but just particularly in Western developed nations need to work to provide an hour of useful light has plummeted thousands upon thousand folds over the last 500 years and really over the last hundred years just you know the amount of the amount of time you have to work to buy a light bulb in 1920 1921 is much less than uh is much more than the amount of time you had to work today to buy a light bulb and a much much better light bulb that lasts longer and has better light and all this kind of stuff light's good i believe light's good the amount of money that like the founding fathers spent on candles so that they could read at night was staggering. And candles give bad light. They stink. They start fires. They're not safe. Blah, blah, blah. Some of them can cause cancer. Yada, yada, yada. Light's good. I'm just going to stake it, you know, stake it out. And so I thought it was, and I, I just think that this is, I could do the same thing with antibiotics and the internal combustion engine and, you know, all sorts of things. But like, I just feel like light is the easiest place for me to stake this point. And, um, and so I thought it was funny. I saw Sora the other day um, and this other guy from the American conservative uh, who had been tweeting about how they loved the idea, like Sorab called it based um, instead of cringe, right? That like in the, I don't have the thing in front of me, but like in the 1840s or 1850s, the um, Catholic church briefly came out against streetlights 
And um, because they detracted from the natural order of things or the guidance, the, you know, the illumination you need is from the church. I can't remember what the reason was, but they came out against streetlights. And it turns out that like these guys think that like that was awesome. I think that's crazy. And I just think it was really funny because like I never thought I would run into people, particularly some of the people who like are on the other side of this argument who would go with the, you know, maybe we have too much light, not enlightenment, right? But too much like light, light, like light bulb light. Maybe that's just too much. That's too much of a luxury today. And, and it, so it gets, I know I'm going to go long now, but now that I'm on this stuff, it gets to this broader point that the, a lot of these people think that, you know, and I don't, I don't mean just the sort of anti-light people, um, but the full sort of, whether it's, want to call them Trumpy or populist or nationalist or whatever, that whole bunch of people, they talk as if they are on the precipice of total and complete power of all the levers of government, and they will be able to impose their will without any blowback without any obstacles. Um, uh, and of course with total and complete wisdom, um, and efficiency. And it's just freaking crazy talk. Um, first of all, no one's going to be winning any elections campaigning against light. And if you do win an election and then you kind of pull a bait and switch and you start pulling way back on like streetlights and light, um, you're not going to get reelected. You know, you're not going to get votes in Congress. And of course, I'm just using light here almost metaphorically for all sorts of other things. Um, my favorite example is from this week where uh, J.D. Vance, who continues to beclown himself because I, he's got to catch up with um, Josh Mandel, um, was on Tucker talking about how because the someone from the Ford Foundation had done something bad and I think that that's almost axiomatically true. I don't like the Ford foundation. Um, but there was some activist who went around and did a dumb harassment video of, of right wingers or something that, that these guys didn't like fine. Okay. And that person had gotten money from the Ford foundation or something. And with that context, JD Vance talked about how you can find the clips, uh, pretty, pretty easily. Um, how he was the only one out there talking about, you know, the most important agenda items, like what he says we should do is, and we, right. Who's the we Kimosabi, but that we should seize the assets of the Ford foundation and redistribute them to the working people of this country. Now, where to begin? Um, first of all, like, one setter out of a hundred from Ohio has zero power to do that. More importantly, 100 senators don't have the power to do that. It is unconstitutional to seize, to, have, to take property from people um, without just cause and without compensation and all that kind of stuff. Moreover, you know, part of the point was that he was getting, I was, a, you know, and Tucker was saying amen to all of this nonsense is that the uh, Ford Foundation has nonprofit, you know, 501c something charitable status. 
Maybe they shouldn't have it. Maybe they should. I, again, I'm not an expert on the Ford Foundation. I don't like the Ford Foundation. Um, um, but it's a foundation that does foundation stuff like lots of other foundations. You know, I think the Daily Caller is owned by a foundation these days. Um, and uh, the idea that, let's just say for the sake of argument, Republicans take back the Senate, they take back the House, um, and then in two years they take back the presidency because you know none of this stuff would happen with Joe Biden um, or Kamala Harris as president. So, um, but let's say the political stars align and you get Republican control of the House and the Senate and the presidency. And J.D. Vance, Senator Vance, writes some legislation about the ability for the state, the federal government to seize the assets of charitable organizations it doesn't like, right? It would have to come up with some criteria why you could do this to the Ford Foundation, but not another foundation. But, and I don't know how you could do them with, without some sort of general applicability, which would create, or, or you'd run afoul of constitutional stuff, but that's, whatever, fine. So seize, you know, seize the assets of foundations and charitable organizations that you don't like. Now, this is a bad idea on the merits. It's a stupid idea on the merits. It's boo bape, boo bape idea. Um, but let's say you did it. Okay. Um, it would only make sense even from, you know, the sort of populist right wing perspective. If you had some high degree of confidence that Democrats would never, ever, ever, ever again, be in charge of the government. Because sure, Shinola, if they were, they would be going after, you know, the Bradley Foundation, which is not high on my list these days either, but, you know, or the, or the Catholic Church, um, or, uh, you know, um, right to life groups. I mean, we saw this, you know, with the IRS under Obama. Um, same thing, you know, with this get rid of Section 230 stuff and a new fairness doctrine stuff. The idea that like the permanent bureaucracy, the deep, what do you call it? The deep state or, you know, the administrative state or whatever, that it would permanently and for all time just do what conservatives want um, uh, is just, it's, it's lunacy. It's naive. It's silly. And telling people that if you vote the right way, we're going to be able to do this stuff is crazy. Unless, of course, this is all prelude to some sort of authoritarian takeover and we no longer have a democracy and elections and all that kind of stuff. And then we got bigger problems. Um, and if you want me to talk about the, the Kagan essay in the Washington Post, I, I talked about it quite a bit on the Dispatch podcast. You can go back and, and get my take there. Um, my shorthand is I think he was directionally right, but um, wrong in some of his analysis. Regardless, you know, this, this idea that we're going to like give the government powers to do everything that we want it to do without even thinking about the consequences of the government being run by people who want to do the opposite of what we want it to do is just so childish. And it's a violation of just countless conservative principles, prudential, philosophical, religious. It's just dumb. I mean, it's really, really dumb. Dumb. And one of the things, and I was just talking to the Harvard 
Federal Society folks about this yesterday, but like one, and I, I know I've brought it up here. One of the things that really just drives me crazy is this idea that somehow the, the quote unquote neutral or procedural rules of a classical liberal order are somehow um, amoral, right? Not immoral. That's not the argument the sort of populist nationalists make. But amoral, that they have no moral content to it, that neutral rules are morally neutral, and we should have rules that are infused with the right moral understanding of things. Now, I think there is room for having morality based laws and all sorts of things. I would, you know, I a lot of social conservative sort of views about like, um, you know, wildly curtailing access to pornography in this country. I mean, that does not bother me philosophically or any of that kind of stuff. And I think you can distinguish between pornography and political speech without batting an eye. And I am not a, I'm not a free speech, you know, uh, voluptuary the way as Robert Bork used to call them the way some people are. But, um, uh, so I have no problem with having, you know, dictating some morality into, um, our laws, but, the point is, first of all, we do that all the time. You know, first of all, homicide laws are moral laws. We are saying that murder is bad. You know, laws about against rape, all sorts of. We have you know, lots and lots of laws that have a moral worldview behind them. Moreover, the real point: procedural liberalism or procedural, you know, classical liberalism, um, as you know, manifested in the the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and all that is morally profound. It is, a, it is a morally righteous thing to require that uh, people be able to face their accuser when accused of a crime. It is a morally righteous thing that uh, the state must have the body, you know, habeas corpus, um, before they can charge somebody. Um, it is a morally righteous thing to protect the conscience rights of religious minorities and the free speech rights of American citizens and the gun rights of American citizens and the property rights of American citizens. These are moral propositions. Not only are they moral propositions, though, they are hard-won lessons from history about how to organize a society where we no longer settle disputes at the tip of a sword and to sort of diminish them as like, amoral or cowardly, which is usually the implication, um, uh, because they afford rights to the, uh, your opponents that, that you get to enjoy as well is just crazy talk. I mean, I can't remember who said it, but it's sort of like, um, what does it go? You know, everything for my friends, the law for my enemies. That's not how it can work, right? That's, that's Caesarism. Um, that's tyranny. Uh, you gotta have the rules apply to everybody or they're not the rules. And, you know, anyway, so I'm sorry for rambling on, but I called up this thing. I've quoted it before in columns. I've probably read it on the air here. Now I can't find it. Uh, no, there it is. This is my favorite scene from my favorite colloquy from man for all seasons. It's, um, it's not the but for whales thing, although it's adjacent to that. It's um, um, the scene between uh, William Roper and Thomas More 
and I'll read both parts. So William Roper says to Thomas More, he says, so now you give the devil the benefit of law? And More responds, yes, what would you do? Cut a great road through the law to get after the devil? And Roper responds, yes, I'd cut down every law in England to do that. And More responds, oh? And when the last law was down and the devil turned round on you, where would you hide, Roper, all the laws being flat? This country is planted thick with laws from coast to coast, man's laws, not God's. And if you cut them down and you're just the man to do it, do you really think you could stand upright in the winds that would blow then? Yes, I'd give the devil the benefit of law for my own safety's sake. This is a fundamental point that keeps getting lost because we have this dumbass parliamentary politics, which says, get elected, swing for the fences, do everything you can to reward your side, to own the other side and pretend like you're never going to lose power again. And then the other side comes in, uh, because precisely because you overreached and overextended does the exact same thing. And the other party gets in because they overreached and overextended and it goes back and forth and back and forth. And everybody seems to think, seems to behave either like we have to do everything that we want to do for the next hundred fricking years because we may lose power and not be able to do it again. Or they think we should change the rules so that they'll work for us as if we're going to be in power for the next hundred years. No one wants to muddle through. No one wants to sort of take the problems that are easy, close at hand and have consensus and deal with those. They all want to do this crazy stuff. And it invites ever more crazy rhetoric to justify the sort of stripping the gears of how our democracy is supposed to work. And so you have, uh, you know, the same week that J.D. Vance is talk, talking about appropriating, expropriating private assets of charitable institutions to be spread about like manure among constituencies that he wants to win over. Um, uh, you had uh, Marco Rubio this morning saying that Biden's infrastructure deal or agenda, I don't remember what, because it's, what Biden wants isn't socialism. It's Marxism. Like, that doesn't even have the benefit of being wrong. It's just dumb. Like, I mean, what is he? I don't know what that means. But like, if you don't like Marxism stuff, whatever he means by that, or maybe what, what Mark Levin in the Franklin School thinks about that means, um, bitching and moaning about what's, you know, in the infrastructure deal that, look, I don't like it all, and the setting up entitlements and, and raising taxes and yada, 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 Ain't Marxism. You can make a case that some of it is sort of social democracy type socialism, you know, whatever. Okay, fine, whatever. Well, you know, you got JD Vance talking about just simply seizing the assets of people he doesn't people and institutions he doesn't like and spreading around willy-nilly. That's a lot closer to you know what I think Rubio means by Marxism. And the only reason I bring it up is one, because I think it's so stupid and it's really funny, but two, because this is kind of the dumb rhetoric, you know, it's Jim Crow on steroids. It's, it's, it's Bolshevism, um, that 
allows one side to ignore the craziness of our own side and get into this existential panic about the other side. And it fuels this dumb dynamic that it does not, contrary to whatever they say on Morning Joe, resemble Madisonian, you know, democracy in any regard. So with that, I guess I'm done. Sorry for rambling. Um, and uh, I know I'm supposed to announce some stuff, but I cannot for the life of me remember. I got to go figure out what I'm going to write about a G file now. Um, and I think I'm on special report tonight. Uh, but you won't know that because this doesn't come out until tomorrow. So hello from the future. Um, I was on special report last night and, um, thanks for listening and I will see you next time.